0: begin with prayer, okay? Heavenly Father, let's, we thank you for another Sunday to gather and to uh, partake in the means of grace, to uh, receive your Word, to uh, open our hearts to you and to one another. We pray for the people that are scattered abroad who listen to these teachings. We pray that they would also... Uh, be touched by You and fed the Word of God. And may they know that they're in our hearts and a part of what we're doing. And Lord, as we study 2 Corinthians, may we catch the, the glory of, of what Paul is teaching, that we could see the glory with unveiled face, as it says here, as we hear the Gospel. And we thank You, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, 2 Corinthians we were talking about verse 17. We started that verse, um, and I want to continue. We hadn't looked up the cross references, but 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 3:17. We we were in a section where there's an extended analogy about the veil. It's commentary in a sense on Exodus 34. 34 how Moses went in God's glory was reflected from his face and he had to be veiled so he had to be veiled when he went down because of the hardness of the people's hearts because they were hard-hearted they couldn't bear to look on God's glory but then when Moses went back up on the mountain on Mount Sinai he would remove the veil when he went into the Lord okay so Paul takes and does kind of some Jewish commentary on that and so Moses becomes an analogy Moses turns to the Lord, removes the veil, and with unveiled face beholds the glory of God. And Paul is saying that through the Gospel, new covenant believers who come to God actually can, like Moses, turn to the Lord, the veil's taken away, and we can behold God's glory. And, and so that that's the basic story of what Paul's teaching here in 2 Corinthians chapter... Uh, 3. And now verse 17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now, this, this new covenant, liberty, has to do with several things, one of which is the law is written on our hearts. God not only uh, tells us His will through His holy law, but He gives us a new heart and a new mind to uh, do what God says by His grace. That that we're enabled to live in a way that we would not be able to live had God not done a work of grace. Okay, And so the law is uh, pointing us to our need for the Gospel. And then as we believe the Gospel, God writes the law on our hearts. And our heart of Stone becomes a heart of flesh, and this hard heart becomes a tender heart, and we have an appreciation and a love for the things that we used to be blind to. And this is a work, this is a sovereign work of God that He does, and it's what conversion is all about. So, this liberty is the freedom to see the truth, to know the truth, to walk in the truth, and to behold the glory of God. So, we're free from the law of sin and death. We have access to God. Um, we have an anchor within the veil, as it says in uh, Hebrews. And there's all these wonderful benefits of the new covenant. So Paul has a new covenant ministry that, that brings liberty, and it does so because of a work of the Holy Spirit. Now this picks up a discussion that goes back to uh, 3, 6 through 8. You see, he talked about the Holy Spirit there, And then went into this extended analogy about the veiling. um, And then now back to the idea of the Holy Spirit. So in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 6, it says, Who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death, in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face, fading as it is, how shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? So, uh, kind of all the way from verse 8, Paul suspended the idea of the Holy Spirit, talked about the veil, now he's back to the idea of the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of the bridge here to the passage that we have before us the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, it says it said in verse 16 that when a man turns to the Lord, and, and as I said, this turning to is sort of a uh, uh, reminder of the terminology in Exodus where Moses turned to talk to God face to face. Now, passages to look up. Um, Robert, could you look up Isaiah 61.1 and Bill, John 6.63 and Denise Romans 8 2 and Robert 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 45 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 45 Isaiah Isaiah 61 1
1: the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a Messianic prophecy, isn't it? So the anointing of the Spirit is on the Messiah, and uh, I think the reason that's a cross-reference here is the idea of liberty. So Jesus quoted Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 in, in Luke 4:18, 18, and, and he said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. So Jesus was the fulfillment, but New Covenant ministry is a carrying out of the ministry of Jesus Christ, so it's bringing liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners. All right, and the prison that we were in, we were in the prison of sin. And that prison is not, is one that no man can break out of. <laughs> okay, you're not going to break out of the prison of sin by human effort. God's going to uh, infuse the the dungeon with light, as the Wesley song says, and and. And the chains fall off and God takes us out of the prison of sin through the gospel. Okay, and then Bill, uh, John 6, 63.
2: It is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life.
0: Yeah, okay. So the words, Jesus said that the words I speak are spirit and life. And the this is important. It's been on my mind all week. Um, the, 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 I, I just can't quit thinking about it. I've been reading that book by MacArthur, The Truth War, and it's it's so powerful. And I'm thinking about the idea of the Word of God and the Spirit of God and how they work together because the Scriptures are God-breathed. The Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures. The Scriptures aren't just ideas. Uh, let, let me Let me tell you a little story to illustrate that. This morning when I came in, um Momi, uh, I, yesterday afternoon I came and uh, Mark was in the bathroom over here uh, putting a shelf in there. And Momi, a fellow from the synagogue, he's been sitting these chairs up ever since I broke my leg. Anyhow, Momi came in and says, why are you putting up the shelf? And Mark said, well, so people can put their Bibles on when they come in here. He goes, you can't bring Bibles into a bathroom. They're, they're holy, Okay? And so this morning he asked me about it. And so I, I said, well, I thought, well, why don't I just explain? And I did. I said, I, so here's what I said. I said, Momi, the Word of God isn't the paper or the ink or the leather or anything like it. It's the words that God spoke. And so the Bible as an object isn't a thing that's holy. it's the words on there, and if we have those in our heart and mind, they go with us in everywhere. And, and, and he said, "Well, thank you for the explanation." Um, so because he couldn't understand why we would put a, take a Bible into a bathroom. Yes.:
1: I remember when I was young
2: and going to Hebrew school and stuff. You'd you would, you would see Jewish people all the time. If they just drop their Bible. They, they pick it up and they kiss their Bible and clean the Bible. And,
0: you know, yeah. It's well, telling you, you you grew up Jewish, right? Yeah. Yep. Well, actually, you can see that with the to- Torah scrolls. They're, they're considered sacred, you know. And and I, and I understand that, but what I was telling him is the truth. It really isn't the paper. It's, it's the words thereon. Uh, I've told people that. I used that as an analogy when I was debating the emergent church uh, person. Um, I, and I, I probably told you this one too. If you actually found the tablets of the Ten Commandments, the real ones, they would do you no good unless you went and learned Hebrew. You, because the stone isn't magic. It isn't like if you, if you had it in your uh, uh, study, then you'd be holy. Or something would, good would happen. It wouldn't do anything. Because what is powerful is the actual words. Okay, so now knowing that and believing that um, should inform what we do with our lives and how we teach our children and how we preach and everything, whatever else we're doing. The words of God are powerful, and when they are taught, the 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 word, the meaning of the Scripture, the thing that's that the words do, words convey meaning. Words are a tool that God uses to convey His meaning to humans. God spoke words. He wrote on stone words. All right? So what's holy is the meaning. The words convey God's meaning. So whenever we teach the Bible, our absolute, holy, God-obligated responsibility is to understand the meaning and accurately convey it. Does that make sense? In other words, nothing is going to do you any good. As far as I'm concerned as a pastor, nothing is going to do you any good other than if I get the meaning right and I bring it to you. Anything else is of no value. Now, I was telling you about that uh, (coughs) uh, CD that you could get MacArthur from that Shepherds Conference or that MP3 where he was talking about premillennial theology and why he felt it was necessary And he was addressing that, and that's what kind of got my mind thinking about this. He says, If I read the Bible, as you guys are, some of you are trying to tell me to do, so I'm reading the Bible, and God says to Israel that I'm going to give you the land and I'm going to make it blossom, and that doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean what the words say, it means the church. He says, I can't read my Bible. He says, "I can't preach that. I can't teach that to you because how would I? You can't do that." He says, "And, and if, you, if you're going to do that to the Bible, he says, I don't have any more anything more to say to you." anybody else hear that message besides me? Um, I, I, I don't have any more to say to you because I can't. I, if, if you won't accept the meaning of the Bible, what am I going to preach to you? Well, then, and it, well, it was fabulous. So then I thought, you know, I'm going to get more bold. So somebody challenged me because they went on on our website and found out that I believe uh, that salvation is is a work of God, not a a cooperative effort between God and man. And so this person was really angry. And so I sent four, I got these verses I would send out that I brought to the debate with uh, Boyd. Yeah, to the Boyd, Greg Boyd. And And it has 40 verses on the doctrine of election. So I just sent it out. And then she was even madder. So I finally said, okay, I can't teach you. If you're going to say every time you read the Bible, God says, I chose you. And in your mind, that means I chose God. There's nothing more I can say to you. I just used the technique that MacArthur said. If we can't read the Bible for what it says, and it doesn't mean, she says, well, you can't believe in predestination. I said, how can I not believe in it? Here's the verse. Oh, what, what, well, no, I can't mean that. Okay, as soon as, you, as soon as the Bible can't mean what it says, then the Bible can't talk to me. It can't change my life. It can't impact me. Are, are you following me? So, I, don't, I didn't come up with this idea because I liked people not to like me as a pastor. You know, If I wanted to be popular, I'd just preach human ability. That's what everybody wants to believe. Everybody has the ability to do whatever they want to do. But I can't preach that because then the Bible doesn't mean anything. But if we are really dead in sin and the only hope to get out of the jail is the power of the Holy Spirit through the gospel, then I can understand the Bible. all right. And so you're not going to hurt a dead sinner by telling the dead sinner you're dead and, you're, and, you're, and you need God to make you alive because that's part of the universal call of the gospel. So with that being said, what we understand is that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty so if you want people to be at liberty, in other words, to be delivered from the problems and sins and bad thinking and all the stuff that hurts us, that, that are not conformed to the image of Christ, then what, what you would do is, cons- cons- as well as possible, with all the, the skill that you can muster, teach that word, bring out the meaning, and let God bring the liberty. The Spirit of God goes with the Word of God to bring God's purposes to pass. He works through the Word of God. So, that's why we, we do that. So, John 6.63, that's what got me thinking about this. My words are, Jesus said, my words are spirit and life. When anybody believes the words of Jesus Christ in the whole New Testament... In fact, the whole Bible is the words of Jesus Christ because He inspired it. When, any, when anybody believes those words, that in that belief, those words are bringing life. Those words are the Spirit of God working in our heart, bringing life. And nothing else can possibly do that. There's nothing else that would ever um, have that kind of power. And when we don't bring the truth, God doesn't change lives because He only works through His Word. He doesn't work through human wisdom. Alright, John 8 and verse, Romans 8 and verse 2.
2: For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death.
0: So the law of the Spirit of life in Christ made me free from the law of sin and death. Now that's from Romans. In Romans, Paul uses the word law, nomos in the Greek, law, he uses it five different ways, so so you really got to know range of meanings. Law can mean Torah. Law can mean um, a principle. Okay, law can mean a number of different things. So now here, the law of the spirit of life. Now, uh, what what he means by that probably is principle or the the reality of of how this works. Okay, so the law of sin and death was what was ruling over us, and it was inescapable. And the law of sin and death was that sinners die. And when sinners die, they can't get themselves back alive, and they can't keep the law to get alive. But this, the law of the... Uh, w- w- again, what was the terminology? The law of the Spirit.
1: L- the law of the Spirit.
0: Okay, the law of the Spirit. So, when when it says here, whenever... A man turns to the Lord. That's our verse 16. The Lord is the Spirit, and in the Spirit of the Lord there is liberty. So the law of the Spirit us free from the law of sin and death. And, and that's it, literally what happens. And it, God does that through the Gospel, through the, through the truth of the Word. I had an interesting conversation. Uh, uh, actually, our friend Keith, they're up now up in the Arrowhead, but Keith called me. He says, I was thinking about this driving up to the... Cabin, I was thinking about this. He said, I think the means of grace are in the garden. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, imagine, Satan always attacks the means of grace. He attacked the means of grace. So what are the means of grace? Well, you have the Word of God. Okay? So he says to Eve, has God said. So he attacked that. What are the, what other means of grace? Well, communion. What, you know, the, the food God provided. Well, Satan attacked that by tempting them to ignore every, the fruit from every tree you can freely eat. That's what God ordained, but not of this tree. So he attacked that. And then the fellowship, as, as we're as we, thinking in Acts 2.42. When, when, when Satan attacked the Word and attacked the food, then what they ended up losing was their fellowship. They became alienated from God and they're hiding. And now they don't have fellowship with God, and they don't pray. Because prayer is, is, now their communion with God is broken, so there's no prayer. So uh, Keith was saying, I think that Satan, from the Garden of Eden until the very end, will always attack the means of grace in order to keep us away from God. He'll attack the Word. He'll attack the, the, the Lord's Supper as far as what it's supposed to mean and what it really is. He'll attack our fellowship with God and with one another, and he'll attack prayer. How does he attack prayer? By, turning, by taking it and, and redefining it. The way prayer is attacked today is that uh, it, the most popular prayer teachers are teaching people not to pray, but to go into an older state of consciousness and to commune with spirits. I, ha- I talked to a CIC reader for an hour yesterday on the phone about that who saw that happen to, to her church, former church, 6,000-member church. They turned the whole basement into a sort of a Buddhist shrine with all these little... She's got pictures of them. She gave those pictures to John MacArthur, actually. But they go around and do this, this chanting and uh, all this kind of stuff. So w- that's an attack against prayer because prayer, Jesus said, you can ask anything in my name and, and I'll hear you and you'll be heard. But he didn't say, repeat a word over and over again until you start hearing voices from the spirit world. So that's an attack against prayer as a means of grace uh, by changing what it is. The attack against the Word is coming twofold. Here the two, there's a two-pronged attack of Satan against the Word of God in the church today. In the secret church, the attack is replacement. You replace the Word with human wisdom. Okay? The Word maybe is one verse in a bulletin, and then you just teach human wisdom. No power. No power. Powerless. In my conversation with this lady... From the East Coast, we were talking about that. Why do the, a lot of these big churches have 12, uh, 12 psychologists on staff? I mean, that's what they're—they're they're churning them out of the seminaries. Marriage and family therapy, number one degree program uh, at the seminary where I graduated from, and that's who's getting hired. If you get a degree in theology, they don't want you. They don't need you. Okay. Well, why? Because if you take the Word of God out of the pulpit, then it doesn't change lives. And all this human wisdom and ten steps to reduce your stress can't powerfully do anything because the Holy Spirit isn't in those ten steps. The Holy Spirit's in the Word. And so then people's lives get messed up and they don't change. And so what they do is they hire more human wisdom dispensers. So that's how the, word, that's how the, the means of grace are attacked in that thing. And then you go over to the emergent church movement and the, and the Word is attacked because they're saying nobody can know what it means. And if you can't know the meaning of Scripture, then you have nothing. The meaning of the Scripture is the Scripture. And when there's no meaning, you have nothing. So uh, between listening to MacArthur and reading and and contemplating this, and uh, Keith and I had an interesting discussion about it, I think that you can just see what the battle of the ages is always going to be. Throughout church history, Satan will attack the means of grace over and over and over. Anything to get the word out of the pulpit. Whether it's liberalism or neo-orthodoxy or some other thing, anything to get that word out of the pulpit. And uh, prayer, it'll attack that. Anything to turn it into something other than what God provided for us. Fellowship, we'll turn it into social rather than fellowshipping around the word and breaking bread and so on. But when the means of grace are front and center in any church, I believe it doesn't matter what country, what language, uh, what denomination. In any situation where the, word, the means of grace are front and center and emphasized and given, according to the Lord's institution, God will change lives. Where this, that's where the Spirit is. This, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Captives will be set free. People's thinking will become clear, rather than clouded and confused, and a lot, a lot of wonderful things will happen. And so, I'm I'm more excited about preaching the word than I've ever been in my whole life. <laughs> because you know, you know, what the great news is once you figure it out, it's not you. It gets easier. <laughs> I I, I always knew I wasn't too good at helping anybody, but now I I know I can't do anything. All I can do is give you the true meaning of the word, and then God'll do it. Isn't that great? One Corinthians fifteen, forty-five, Robert.
2: So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last man the last Adam became a life-giving spirit.
0: Wow. So Christ is a life-giving spirit where the Spirit of the Lord is now the Lord is the Spirit. So that's the cross-reference there. Christ is this life-giving Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. In fact, uh, Romans 8 talks about the Spirit of Christ. Now let's go to verse 18. We talked about this a little last week. But we all... Now, now this here, this we all, is a reference to all New Covenant believers who come to God on His terms. Paul's not just talking about himself now, but he's talking about everyone who turned to the Lord. The we all are the ones who truly turned to the Lord. Verse 16... And have received the Spirit, verse 17. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord to Spirit. Now, this is a rather complex um, sentence. And um, I I did a bunch of work on it last night, uh, looking at the Greek and trying to unpack it. But I think the key points here are, are clear enough. I think the key idea the key idea in this verse, we kind of break it down into components so that we get it. The key idea is the, fr- the little uh, phrase, are being transformed. That's the controlling idea of the, of the verse, are being transformed. That's important. And the word in the Greek there is the word from which we get our, our word, metamorphosis. So we are being metamorphosized. Is that a word? I don't know. <laughs> well, if it is a word, it would be a good one. <laughs> but we're being transformed, sort of like the um, uh, the how a butterfly becomes a butterfly. Yes,
2: it's almost like the gradual sanctification <clears throat> uh, until
0: the uh, resurrection or we're raptured. Yeah, it, and it's it's in the it's in the uh, it's in the same tense here. It's in the present tense, which is present continual tense. So Christians who are beholding as in a mirror the glory of God, and I think that we do that through the gospel, through the word of God, uh, we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. So there's this uh, seeing the glory through the gospel and beholding and being transformed are in the same tense. And there are two things that are going on. So unbelievers, I think, let's just look at a cross-reference um, uh, Troy, could you look up it's just the next page in your Bible maybe the same page 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. 4, 4. I'll just stand close oh, here he comes. in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God yeah, so it says the God of this world blinds the minds of the unbelievers so they don't see the glory of God in the light of the Gospel. So that's the opposite of what this is saying. So there's two cases here. There's the case of the blinded, which would be anybody who's an unbeliever, is blinded, and you can't see the glory. You can't see the, the, the significance. Uh, uh, you can understand the concept. So somebody is saying, yeah, there was a man named Jesus who came and lived, and he died, and he was ro- raised on the third day, and he did that because you're a sinner, and you need the, the blood of Jesus to wash away your sins. Well, when you're dead in sin, you can understand those concepts, but you think, well, why? What kind of. of, I've had people tell me this. Why would God kill His own Son? And what good is that going to do me? But see, the blindness is that you don't see the glory in it because you don't understand. The light is not turned on, okay? But God uses the gospel to actually turn on the light. So you preach it. That's the universal call. Now. Um, so, it's either having an unveiled faith, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, as the case of those who have turned to the Lord, or it's the case of being blinded and not unable to see it, as in 2 Corinthians 4 4. So, it's either or, it's one, one or the other. So, all new covenant believers who are the same group that have the Holy Spirit, or the same group for whom the veil is taken away, or the same group that have turned to the Lord, or the same group that are beholding it as a mirror the glory and are the same group that are being transformed into that same image. This one group, New Covenant believers, there's, there's no elitist Christianity that's valid. Amen. There's absolutely no version of Christianity that, that says there's the, the high-level Christians and then the ordinary Christians. And whenever you hear that doctrine, reject it forthrightly. And the best way to look at yourself is that you're a sinner saved by grace. And the elitists are always offering something that God never offered. You know, uh, some sort of new revelations or new new apostles and prophets or new power or new this or new that or new something. No, if it isn't already true for all of us, that's not what this is talking about. I don't see anything in here saying that it's only true for some Christians. So all the things that are descriptive of what it's like to have the veil taken away, what it's like to know the Lord, what it's like to see His glory, what it's like to be transformed, are what God does for New Covenant believers. So the the unveiled face is interesting. Now if we go back to our Moses analogy, Moses was the one who was the chosen mediator, so Moses could take the veil off, Moses could go and see the glory of the Lord, but nobody else could because he had to veil it when he went down. So, New Covenant believers all have access and are unveiled. So, they're more like Moses than the people down at the bottom of the uh, hill that couldn't even touch the hill unless they die. Okay, this is uh, Barnett. says this, When these verses are read together, now he quoted... 3.18, 4.4, and 4.6. 4.6 says, The glory of God, the face of Christ. 4.4, 4, that they might not see the glory of Christ and the image of God. So then he says, These verses are read together. It emerges that what we all behold as in a mirror is the face of Christ, who is the image of God, radiant with the glory of God. Okay, so what we're beholding is the face of Christ. Now, not literally, but we're beholding the glory of the new, reality of the new covenant of messianic salvation. Okay? And, and that's true that we're seeing that. And the interesting thing is that the process of beholding, again, which is we're doing through the Word, not through some mystical technique, but through the Word, the process of beholding is how God is transforming us into His image. So we're seeing the glory of Christ, and, and we see that we fall short of that, because it says actually in the tense in uh, Romans 3:23 says all sin and are falling short of the glory, so we're, we haven't fully attained the glory. Okay, and but in the process of beholding, which we get through the through the word, what happens is we are being transformed, and that transformation that that's that word metamorphosis, and that transformation process culminates at the resurrection. And when we actually see him as he is, First John uh, three two. Uh, Dave, since you just showed up, go to work. First John three two. You thought know, you'd just sneak in here late and not have to do a thing, right? <laughs> and that's only assuming that that's the verse I'm looking for. I think I'm right. First John three two. Is is that this is what God's doing? Is making us more like Jesus? As he's looking for that, let me quote some more here. Paul's mirror analogy suggests that we see the glory of the Lord indirectly or mirrored, as it were, in the face of Jesus Christ, the image of God. Thus, Paul's language transcends a local dispute between Paul and the Corinthian church. Here is the revelation of the glory of God to humankind in the human face glory to be sure, but human nonetheless, of Jesus Christ, the image of God. And Jesus said, he who has seen me, he has seen the Father. He's the express image of God. Okay, First John 3, 2, is that the right, what does it say?
2: Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is.
0: Okay, when he appears, that's the verse I was looking for. When he appears, we will be like him. And so, at the resurrection, there's the completion of this, Metamorphosis, to use the word that Paul used from the Greek. So uh, that is a hope. It's, a, it's the hope of glory. The, the, the hope is that someday we'll be done with sin altogether and we'll be done with, with falling short and being done with all kind of stuff that's not right in this world and that we'll actually be like Jesus. And the, and the, the process that is causing that metamorphosis is beholding. And the beholding is only through the Word, by faith. It's not uh, that book, book, Greg Boyd, Seeing is Believing, that that a Jesus appears in your mind and talks to you. That's not what this is talking about. Now it goes on here. There may be a further inference, a seeing, that is, as it were, image to image. We all who see the glorified image of God are ourselves also the image of God. So he's thinking about the fact that man is created in God's image. So created by God, but now an image marred and defaced through disobedience to God. The one we all see mirrored from God, though different from us, yet corresponds with us who see Him. It's a vision of who we shall be. 1 John 3, 2, that was our verse. Through the gospel, the one whom we see as in a mirror is the glorified human, the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? Okay. The man Christ Jesus, the one mediator between man and God is what he means. Who is the glorified, reflected image of God. As we behold him as in a mirror, we are transformed into the same image. It would, be, would appear that Paul has chosen this verb, beholding as a mirror, with care. So he's, he's thinking of the image of God that's in the human, being, that's being restored to that image, and the image of God that's in the person of Christ is the perfect image of God. Okay? Really, really interesting. Well, I have a bunch of verses here. Um, I can't see your name tag. Do you have one? <laughs> Alice? Alice? <laughs> I'm sorry. Alice, Genesis one twenty six and 27. And Kat, uh, 1 Corinthians 15:49. Kathleen, uh, Romans 8:29 and 30. And Roger, John 1 and verse 14. Then i got some more, but we'll just start there. Yeah, Genesis 1, 26 and 27.
2: Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in
1: his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them.
0: Okay, so male and female created in the image of of God. So humans are image bearers of God. Now that continues to be true uh, in Genesis 9, when it talks about when man kills man by sheds man's blood, uh, by man shall his blood be shed because he's in the image of God. And that's talking about humans in general, even in, in the sense of the fall. And then in James it says, with the tongue we curse men who are made in God's image. So all humans are still image bearers of God. However, and that's why we believe in the sanctity of life, by the way, one of the reasons. However, this is marred by sin. And those who believe the gospel and are converted are being transformed into what God had in mind to begin with when He was making humans to be image bearers of God. And they're being by, transformed by beholding in a mirror Christ, who is the image of God. So we should preach a lot about Christ, don't you think? Because that that's, it focuses our eyes on the image that we're supposed to be seeing. And those who do not believe the gospel stay in their sin-cursed state in, in, under the law. Okay, bound under the law of sin and death. Now, um, the next passage was 1 Corinthians 15, 49.
1: And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man.
0: Okay, so there's an uh, analogy between the image that was in humans, we shall bear the image of the glorified Christ in the future. And then Romans 8:29 and 30.
1: For those God knew he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those he predestined he also called, those he called he also justified, those he justified he also glorified
0: ok, that's the golden chain the golden chain one group of people, just like what the passage we're studying now, the unveiled the ones who have the Holy Spirit the ones who are being transformed, the ones who are beholding the glory of God. It's one group of people, and all those things are true for the entire group. Now, in this golden chain that Paul gives here, the foreknown, the the predestined, um, justified, glorified, are all the same group. And this group are predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. There's that image idea. So the the people who are Christian are predestined by God to be conformed to the image of Christ. And someone, uh, uh, boy, email sure gives you a chance to have a lot of disputes, but I'll tell you. um, Somebody's disputing the security of the believer in an email. And every time I hear that, I just send, this is the verse I said. So if you don't want to believe in the security of the believer, then now we're back to the same problem. We can't believe what it says. All right? Because it says that all the foreknown predestined even if you say, okay, I don't believe in predestination, and I don't believe in uh, election, but I believe in foreknowledge, okay, so if you're going to say that, well, you're still stuck with the same problem because the foreknown are glorified. Okay, so, if God foreknows that somebody 's going to believe the Gospel, then those ones are going to be glorified. So, how can you say they won 't be uh, and what kind of eternal life is temporary? Well, I had eternal life, and then i didn 't have it well, then it wasn 't eternal <laughs> never heard of, ever heard of temporary eternal life. <laughs> All right. This is a senseless idea. And so finally, I said this thing. I said, you know, this there's a reason why the Reformation happened for centuries. All of the church was being dangled over the pit of hell by religious authorities. And and that's what uh, I watched the movie Luther here the other day. And it was interesting uh, to see this guy that was selling the indulgences and how uh, he abusing. he, He was so abusive to these people. And Luther saw the people being abused because they were being said, you, you, you've got to pay or you're going to be in hell. Come up, come up with your money, you're going to be in hell. And, and so there's no security because they're not secure in Christ. They're being insecure forever and ever and ever. And some of those people undoubtedly really did believe in Christ and really did trust Him, but they were not granted security by the church because of bad doctrine. Okay, And so now there are people claiming that we have to go back to taking away the security of the believer. Otherwise, they won't want to be good Christians. That's, that's what this guy was saying. And I said, well, listen, <laughs> you don't understand how God works. God doesn't make us good Christians by, by uh, dangling us over the pit and, and so, so we feel the flames. And, and, and then we try. It doesn't work anyhow. Ryan has a story about that. Thank you. No, (laughs) He's looking for Sammy or something. No, uh, you told a story one time about this person that you knew that read a book about somebody going to hell? Yeah, there's
1: a book that is a bad book, but he read it. It's called, you know what it's in the bookstore,
0: it's called A Divine Revelation of Hell. Bob, you actually did a book about the Yeah, I quoted it. I'm not quite up there running yet, but I'm... Yeah, that, that, but I'm, I'm trying to prove that d- dangling people over hell won't right. make them sanctified. What did I get myself into here?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, actually, if you want to read about the book, you did a book review. I did this. a
0: book review. It's called Visiting Heaven and Hell. Yes,
1: and uh, well, the book is just, it, it's, it's, it's a bad book, but basically what the book was, was this lady apparently said she went down to hell and just saw the most wretched things ever. And basically, one of the things is somebody was down there in hell being tortured in the worst possible ways is for, for drinking, for getting drunk. Well, my roommate in college read this, and he go and he, he, this is down in Mankato party school, and he was getting drunk every Thursday night. <laughs> so he's like, I got to stop drinking, because I'm going to go to hell if, if, if I don't stop. So that, and that was it. He, no repentance, no anything. Well, the next Thursday he was getting drunk again.
0: <laughs> it lasted two days. It lasted about
1: a week. <laughs> and he, he thought he was going to hell. But, you know, he, that went away within about a week. And then all of a sudden he saw everybody else going out and drinking. And there he was back getting drunk a week later. Grace changes people. That's, yeah. what, that's the bottom line.
0: Yeah, that was the very point I was making. That uh, I saw the same thing happen before, too, where people actually got scared. But they can't change because the grace of God by the Holy Spirit changes us not just being afraid of hell. Now, God can use the doctrine of hell as part of the universal call to drive us to the gospel. But if we don't actually go to the gospel, being afraid of hell isn't going to do any good. And if we have gone to the gospel and we have a false doctrine so the gospel doesn't remove the fear of hell, that's not going to help us be sanctified because it's false.
2: I was amazed right after 9/11 how many people came to church because they were afraid of yeah. death, dying, whatever. You know, and so all of a sudden they got religion.
0: Yeah, for, for a two, little while, two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. We need to. Where were we at? Okay, oh, we just started that, Kathleen, by reading that verse, right? <laughs> but notice the passage here that she read. It says here predestined to become what? Conformed to the image of His Son. And that's what we're talking about. Beholding as in a mirror the image. Okay? So the Word of God is like a mirror that just is showing us the image of Christ and giving us hope that one day we'll be like Him. Okay, and then what passage did I give you? Okay?
1: The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth.
0: Wow. So in John 1.14, it says that Jesus Christ, that they, whom they saw, and, and John emphasized that later, that He actually saw Christ, both the pre-resurrection Christ and the resurrection Christ, uh, resurrected Christ. And notice this summary of this. And we beheld His glory. John one fourteen it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt. That word dwelt there means pitched his tent in the Greek, uh, and it's probably an allusion to the tabernacle. So when when God, when the tabernacle was pitched in the wilderness, and the glory of God descended, pillar of fire by night and pillar of cloud by day, they knew the glory was in, inside of that inner tab, uh, inner holiest place, right? Well, so there's an allusion to that that Jesus pitched his tent and, they, and seeing Christ, the incarnate, God incarnate, they saw the very glory of God. And notice here, there's another allusion to the Old Covenant uh, full of grace and truth. Grace and truth is what Moses found when he went up to see God's face. But he was hid in the cleft of the rock. It says that the Lord, the Lord, full of Hemeth, um, truth, uh, hesed and emeth, um, uh, loving kindness and truth. And uh, the closest New Testament word to hesed, and I can't pronounce it, there's a ch, hes. <laughs> and I, don't, I can't make that sound. It's a Hebrew sound, not an English one. But hesed is uh, the closest English word or Greek word is, is grace, charis, grace. And so there's an allusion probably to the glory of God on Mount Sinai, and the glory of God in the tabernacle. And in Jesus Christ, the very glory of God appears in bodily form. And it says that for believers, as we behold his glory, we're transformed into the same image. So ultimately, that's what it's going to be. Truly image bearers of God in a way that he intended greater than even Adam was before the fall. God's restored, The restored, redeemed human race will be in a better condition than Adam. Well, let me, can I, do you want to know why? All right. Because Adam was corruptible. He was innocent, but not incorruptibly so, because he was able to sin and, and fall. You know, uh, so Adam was corruptible. But when we're uh, redeemed ultimately and resurrected and we are transformed into the image of Christ, we shall be Incorruptible. This corruptible, we say this at funerals, this corruptible must put on incorruption. So once we are the redeemed in heaven, we shall never sin again. Amen. Because God will give us a new nature. That's truly good news.
2: I know that some things we won't know until we get to heaven, but if, when... When God created the angels, they must have been
1: corruptible.
0: Uh, okay, good, good question. I've had this discussion, um, very interesting discussion. What about the angels? Well, we believe that some of the angels fell, and the rest did not. But do you know what the New Testament calls the ones that did not? Elect angels. Right? So they didn't fall because God preserved them from falling. He kept them from doing so. Now, why didn't He keep them? Again, I've the theological discussions are very interesting. So people people are always wanting me... The one question they want me to answer is the one that nobody knows. Okay, <laughs> okay They're going to say, well, why didn't God keep all the angels from falling then? I don't know.
2: Same thing as His elect in 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 us right
0: yeah and that's why ultimately he keeps us because it's something that he did and and so then when i get in these discussions people say "Well, why didn't god create adam incorruptible he's capable of doing that well i don't know why don't you tell me why god put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden and why did why don't you tell me why god lets satan into the garden if you can answer that, then you've got a different Bible than I have because I can't find the answer. <laughs> yeah, it just it, it, see, a mystery, the, the term mystery is is kind of, is used in two ways, all right? A mystery can be something, in fact, the best way to look at it is one way. A mystery is something that would not be known had God not chosen to reveal it. So when Paul uses the term mystery in the New Testament, and he talks about, the, the, uh, the mystery of iniquity, or the, this is a mystery referring to Israel, or the mystery that God is making the Jews and Gentiles into one new man. Those things are revealed now, that, but they wouldn't be known had God not revealed them. But there's also things that he never has revealed. So they remain mystery. Okay? And, and, we, and we try to make the mystery non-mysterious by theological speculation, Beyond what can be validly derived from Scripture, we're not doing anybody a service. All right? Yes? Uh, did you have a reference for that some of the angels were elect? Like? I knew you would ask that. <laughs> I don't have my computer. Does somebody have a computer Bible? I think it's in Timothy. I think it's in Timothy. Where's yeah, Brian Flynn speaking down in, in Missouri, so he doesn't have his computer Bible with him. I think elect angels is in, uh, he, he references I think, in Timothy. I hate it when I don't know something. Who's that? First Timothy I got the book right. 1 Timothy 5.21. Okay, 1 Timothy 5.21, elect angels. Um, anyhow, it's, it's interesting uh, questions. Uh, the people will say, "It's just why is it like this? And, uh, we can't know. Well, how about this one? How come after Satan, I think, wouldn't we all agree the first sinner was Satan? Okay, he's the first one to rebel against God. Now it says that the lake of fire is reserved for the devil and his angels, right? So why didn't God put him there right away? I don't know. And the closest answer, I'll tell you what the closest I see to an answer in the New Testament, I'll tell you what it is. And that's why I hold to the theology that I do hold. I think the best answer is that God is willing to reveal both His mercy and His justice. That He shows His mercy in in salvation and He shows His justice in the the final judgment. The Bible does say that, that He's willing to do do that. but it doesn't, some of these questions that, that we want to answer, if they're not answered, there's nothing wrong with saying you don't have an answer. <laughs> it's, it's, in fact, it's way better to do that than to make one up because you think it sounds good. <laughs> it says here um, in Romans 9, verse 22, this is the closest to an answer that I've seen in the Bible as to why God allows all these things to happen. Romans 9:22 But what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Now I think those two verses would give a would give reason to think that the idea that God's willing to display His wrath ultimately rather than... See, he could, like I said, He could have done this with Satan on day one. But this passage says He's willing to allow this to go forward to show mercy to vessels of mercy. It's the closest thing I found to an answer. Not everybody likes it. Okay, Dan? Uh, People
1: don't like predestination, but even God was long-suffering. Suffer long towards the vessels that are fit for destruction. You know, our citizenship is in heaven, but our feet are on the ground here. And to be like the image and likeness of God, people don't have nothing to say good about anybody. Even Christians are yakking all the time. i dealt with two suicides, and people are made in the image and likeness of God, the lost. Be careful what you say. But the pervert may want to hear the gospel predestined, the murderer, the harlot, all kinds of people out there. So this predestination should make you want to go out there all the work, people that yeah. why should I be involved so get out there tell this gospel You're those people coming all the time you have a little circle and those little people that you talk about and don't like tell them the gospel Christians are terrible yeah. today are you talking about born again yakking against everybody put it and get out there let your light shine before
0: men. Dan, so what you're saying then is that there are people who God is going to save yes. that are there that are maybe in such hideous conditions, right. and you don't know.
2: And I was one of them.
0: I know, Dan. Yeah. <laughs> We're glad you're on our side now. <laughs> okay. Uh, yes, Bill.
2: Well, this is interesting. Uh, you know, I as you know, I study the uh, a particular occult uh, mindset called Christian Kabbalah, and one of those mindsets uh, says that God um, didn't know who he was, so that he uh, created creation, so that by looking at creation, uh, it was a mirror, so he could determine what he was by virtue of, of what he created. And in this verse, in uh, uh, Romans 9, verse 23. It says that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy. So it's just the opposite. It's the opposite he, he didn't yeah. want to know who he was. He wanted to, to know his creation. He wanted to let his creation know and, and make a sign to reveal himself.
0: Yes, absolutely. Good point. Um, okay, I think we pretty thoroughly covered this verse 18. We're about out of time. Um, you have something to say?